Hey, you are listening to Oh Crap Parenting with me, your host, Jamie Gorlacki. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, guys. All right, so this episode has been a long time in the making, and I have never crafted a podcast so carefully because there's so much I want to say, and I really want to get a lot of information in your hands. This podcast is all about how I eat, how I live, how I train. I get many, many questions and DMs on Instagram about this. I've posted meals, posted me working out. People say, you know, oh my God, how do you do that? What do you do? So it was partly prompted by that. But this podcast was also prompted by when I released my Spartan Beast episode and I called it my Spartan Awakening, I got a most miraculous comment. If you listen to that episode, one of the things that was a highlight of that race was just this utter awe of my body and what it can do. And like, I am so in love with this body and this mind, this person named Jamie, my soul. But the Spartan race really, I had this crazy moment of just like how capable my body is. And a patron on Patreon asked, she said, you know, I want to feel that way. I want to feel that way about my body. Where do I start? And that was in September. And I sort of got, I've been thinking about it. Every trail walk I do with Maverick, I constantly am thinking about it because I was like, where would I start? I've been doing this so long. I've been at this so long, health, nutrition, fitness, movement, from diet culture to body positivity. It took me a really long time to unravel it. And so this episode is prompted by that. But this episode is also prompted by two other factors. So that was September. And then right around October, we got this Halloween stuff coming in my Instagram feed. And of course, I like it's all parenting stuff for me, right? It's kids and parenting and picky eating and mom influencers. And there was Halloween and intuitive eating. Intuitive eating has been around. And the premise is eat whatever you want, whenever you feel like it, and your body will level out and you will you know, typically heal a binge restriction cycle by allowing yourself anything. And then you'll, you'll settle, right? Like at first you might be like, Oh, I can have candy. I'm going to eat all the candy, but you'll settle if you just do intuitive eating. And this was focused around Halloween. And I was shocked because there was all this focus on intuitive eating with kids and allowing kids as much candy as they want before Halloween so that it's not a big deal. So candy's just in your house all the time and then it won't be a big deal. But the way to do that is to give them candy at every meal. And I was seeing this in a lot of different places. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> I don't understand this. And then there was a lot of talk about moralizing food and that there's no good food, there's no bad food. And I was like, there are some foods that are not good for the human body. Don't get me wrong. There's no moralizing people who eat whatever they eat. I'm not saying anybody's good, anybody's bad, but there are foods that don't belong in the human body. So that's what prompted this episode. And all of these things, all of these questions, you know, how do I eat? Where do I start? What about intuitive eating? And lastly, there was a, another factor that's upon this episode, and that was menopause. So I am floating through menopause. I don't have any menopausal symptoms. I have not had waking, no night sweats, no hot flashes. And I'm watching younger people. A lot of my friends are a good 10 years younger than me, and they're having horrific perimenopause, and they're going into early menopause. And there is something up because that used to not be the case. Even when I was a kid, menopause was like my age. It was like mid-50s. Anything below that was considered early menopause, which means your hormones are fucked up. And this episode has a lot to do with that. 
all of these things do begin and end with how we move our bodies, how we approach moving our bodies and the food we put into our bodies. And first, I'd really like to tell my full story for a few reasons. Number one, I really want you to know where I came from and the long and arduous road I've been on with nutrition, with health, with fitness, with eating disorders, with body positivity, body image issues, and how I got to this place of, first of all, astounding health, but also astounding love of my body and who I am. And it's all tied up and it's a long story. So grab a cup of coffee and settle in. This is going to be a long episode, but I love this episode. I've worked really hard on it. (laughs) I want you to know a few things though, because I'm telling my story, it's not just, I think it's interesting being an adult female in America. I think if you have somehow escaped managing food or any food issue whatsoever, be it positive or negative, consider yourself lucky and unscathed. I think all of us struggle with some area of food, even if it's trying not to struggle with food. I think the one thing that's happening is most people don't really understand what true health is and what it feels like. And for me, that's the biggest thing. I think we've come to view health as not sick, as not in the hospital. And there are all these minor things about us and our bodies, be it allergies, joint pain, dry skin, dandruff, bloated, whatever, that we come to accept as like, oh, that's just a thing. I'll just go to CVS and I'll go grab a an over-the-counter medicine. And I think the problem is none of us know We've really forgotten what true health feels like. And I want to share my story about that because I think it's powerful. And I want you to know the unbelievable healing power of food. Because again, I think we just put food in our mouths and we know it might give us energy. We tend to think of it in terms of, you know, weight a lot of times where, you know, sugar doesn't make our kids bounce off the wall, which is a mess. Uh, (laughs) But we'll discuss that in another podcast. I really want to go through too how I discovered the true corruption of food because you can't look at food and nutrition without looking at how corrupted it is and how we think about food. And I am not a conspiracy theorist, but I have gone down a lot of rabbit holes and I will share that with you. And I think just greed, just plain old greed has corrupted our food supply. But there's also so much corruption in how our dietary guidelines came to be. And that I think will shock you. And I also really just want to talk about how... I think the words health and fitness have gotten co-opted by both diet culture and by the body positivity movement, which I love, but has, you know, there's a pendulum swing there. And I think health and fitness don't have to be so stringent in what they mean. And lastly, I do, I'm not kidding. I really want you guys to know about menopause because if you're in your thirties right now, you need to start paying attention because all these things are going to accumulate and it's going to kick you from behind when you hit menopause and then it's going to suck and your aging is going to suck. So a lot of the things we view as health and fitness can be positive or negative, but they will accumulate and you will be screwed when you're older. And so I really want you guys to age well. I'm aging so well and I It's not like when I was 40 and I really, really dove into this and started eating this way. It's not like I was like, I'm going to cure myself. I'm going to age really well. But now I'm noticing I don't have crepe skin. I don't have joint pain. I don't have any of the typical, you know, aging things or menopausal symptoms. So let's start at the, at my beginning. (laughs) So I can walk you through this. Again, my whole story is about how powerful food is and how I healed. So. We'll start at the very beginning. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you do know that I am very vocal about having had a horrific childhood. And what's happening is now, even though I'm being as a trauma informed practitioner, I will, you know, read books or studies about trauma and I am shocked 
at what is trauma and what I experienced. And I was like, well, if that's trauma, I should be dead. And it's true. I should be. (laughs) But the very first thing I had an aha moment a few weeks ago in talking to myself about this episode. And I remembered my very first dissociative eating episode. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. My mom had made a pot of spaghetti sauce and I sat there and I ate not only the pot of spaghetti sauce, but I ate it with like two or three loaves of bread. And I remember I wasn't like blacked out. I remember eating it, but I was like telling myself a story or something in my head. And I was going about my business and I ate all of that. And of course it had a chemical reaction in my brain and it sedated me. And it was a now ingrained coping device. Now I was like, wait a minute, this feels good. And dissociative eating is binge eating for sure. And it's different from emotional eating. It's not like you had a hard day and you had a couple of bars, of, uh, you know, you had a candy bar or something like that. Dissociative eating is 100% binge eating. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think when we start looking at food and especially how we talk about our, to our kids and how we want to approach food with our kids, of course, we know now that focus on food can lead to eating disorder. And I think a lot of people think that eating disorders come out of a child restricting first, maybe having body image issues and restricting, and the restricting leads to binging. And while I think that can happen, I think it's not really severe, right? In most cases, eating disorders come out of extreme trauma. But the only reason I'm representing, I mean, I'm presenting this to you is because I think dissociative eating usually starts first. And people like eat unconsciously, mindlessly, they overeat, they get a nice dopamine hit with all that carbohydrate, right? Because nobody just, nobody binge eats broccoli. They just don't. (laughs) And so I just want to present to you that I think that's where eating disorders start. I think you have that dissociative eating, which leads to binges, which leads to extreme weight gain, right? Which then leads to either bulimia, or to restrictive cycles. And then of course you're on a, you're on a treadmill, right? But it is, it becomes a coping mechanism and that sometimes the binging comes first, not the restriction. So I think that's just important because we are talking to our kids about food and you want to watch out for that dissociative eating, which if you're listening to my podcast, you're probably conscious and very aware if your child would be doing some dissociative eating. It's mindless. Now for the next 15 years, I could say that was pretty much a roller coaster of crazy. I was crazy in general, but I think there was always an eating disorder in the background. It wasn't a forefront. I was never hospitalized, but it it was always kind of present. You know, I want you to know that as a grown adult female, I have been 90 pounds and I have been 220 pounds and I have tried every diet on the market, every diet. There is not one thing you can tell me that I have not tried. So I only tell you that to let you know that I've been there. I've totally been there. I have not always been in shape. I have not always been sane around food. (laughs) After years and years of therapy, you know, things eased up a bit. I can still say it was in the background. I think the biggest thing is I was always managing food. I was always managing food and I always thought it was about weight. Now I can look back with a different lens and think I was always trying to figure out, I don't think we're meant to be hungry all the time. And I don't think we're meant to be binge eating either. So I was always kind of looking for like, and, and health. I really believed that we were meant to be healthy. And I was never like, I mean, I was okay, but I wasn't like in stellar health. Anyway, I start circus training in my late 20s. And that was like part of, it was one of the more glorious moments of realizing that strength trumps skinny anytime. So, you know, I'd been a performer. It was, you had to watch your physique. I had done, you know, musicals and tours with musicals. And, you know, you got to be, they get down on you if you don't, if you're a certain weight. So way to find a career to support that eating disorder, Jamie, right? (laughs) 
But I remember in circus, I had an acro partner and she looked at me one day and she was like, wait, how much do you weigh? And my face must have gone ashen. And she said, dude, I don't care how much you weigh. I just want to know if I can lift you. And it was this epiphany of like, oh, right. It's not about being skinny. It's about, can I lift you? (laughs) So circus was tremendously healing for that, but also, you know, had to watch your physique just for aesthetics and getting cast in things. It was the first time I had actually sought out a nutritionist because I was like, wait a minute. And remember now this was early, early nineties. Yeah. So early mid nineties and diets were abound, but nutritionists, I think were still kind of a blossoming uh, career. So I go to see a nutritionist and this was my first time being presented with like a diet, not just a fad diet. Like I had been on diets, but like the cabbage soup diet, the air pop popcorn and grapefruit diet, the drink tab, because Diet Coke hadn't been invented yet, drink tab for one day, and then only eat one yogurt. (laughs) I'd run on those diets. But meeting with the nutritionist was the very first time I got presented with a diet, which was 1200 calories. This woman wanted me on 1200 calories. At the time, I probably was around 130. Guys, 1200 calories is a toddler's requirements. Yes? It is not a grown female's requirement. So, so please, anybody, I get so furious when I hear about women on 1,200, 1,500 calorie diets. That's nonsense. But this nutritionist was like 1,200 calories and it was the dietary guidelines, right? So it was six to 12 servings of grains and it, that would be a half a cup, you know, this many servings of fruit. And she was the first one who was like, you know, a half a banana. And the half a banana thing in the diet culture world drives me nuts. Like bananas coming out, uh, it comes in a package. Uh, it's a whole package. It's bananas. <laughs> and so she actually like fed my eating disorder a little bit more because I was fucking hungry and we didn't have fitness trackers. I'm doing circus work, you know, hours a day and she's got me on 1200 calories. And I was so hungry all the time. Honestly, in my bout of anorexia, anorexia was easier than this because I'd rather not eat than eat 1200 calories and be fucking starving while my muscles are eating themselves. So I got so furious. I was like, this can't be the answer. This cannot be the answer, even though it's the guidelines, even though they, this nutritionist is telling me, and I'm not a nutritionist. So I started going down rabbit holes because I was pissed. So as I'm going down the rabbit holes, you know, time is moving on. I actually retired from circus work and I'm managing food again. I'm I'm, I'm doing okay, but not fun. Again, food is just constantly in the background. I'm a social worker now. Things are fine. But I definitely started on the the standard American diet that is, you know, not the crap food, the, the healthy recommendations. I was an eat the rainbow kind of girl, eat all the vegetables. Guys, I was eating quinoa before you were born. I can guarantee it. I was eating quinoa before it was anywhere but like a weird, weird health food store. Whole foods didn't exist yet. (laughs) You know, I did vegetarianism. I did veganism. I really, I did not care for those. I could not make sense of a way of eating that required so much supplementation and all that supplementation. It bothered me for the environmental impact. I did okay again, but I was still managing food, you know? And this is where I think health gets really tricky because I was eating as quote unquote healthy as it gets. And you might think this is the healthiest way to eat, right? I was eating lean protein, tons of vegetables, lots of whole grains. 30% of my diet was fat. We began to get trackers and tracking your macros. I still didn't feel like a hundred percent. I had bags under my eyes. I had very dry skin, eczema, sometimes dandruff, wicked bad periods. I was moody. Like I was just moody. I wasn't always happy. I had bouts of arthritis. Sometimes I was so super bloated and that 
Like I'd look five months pregnant. Then the next day I wouldn't. I was pretty famous for my gas. I have always said I could move, I could move a person with my gas. My gas was horrific. My poop was okay. Now looking back, I can say my poop wasn't great, but at the time, hey, everybody struggles with poop, right? The biggest thing I think was that I was hangry. I had to eat. I was one of those people. No, I have to have something in my purse. I have to eat every two hours. I get shaky and weird. Always thinking about food. Healthy food? Yes, but still thinking about food. And the reason I can tell you about these things is because they went away. At the time, this is what I mean about health. You can think, oh, I'm healthy. I eat healthy. Really? But are you checking in with all these things? Health isn't just your numbers, your lab numbers. It's your quality of life. And these symptoms that I just listed, I think we've come to accept as just part of life. And they're not. So that's why I say like, it's only in hindsight that I can say I didn't feel good because I don't have any of these things anymore. But again, by all accounts, I was healthy, eating exactly as I was supposed to eat. And so everything else is to be expected, right? So then around 40, arthritis hit really hard. My lower back, my hips, and my hands. I mean, it crept up on me, but one day I stopped being able to get out of bed standing straight up. My hands were, my hands aren't gnarled. You know, when people get old and they get those gnarls, it's not like that, but they would get stuck, almost frozen, and I couldn't hold a pen. I could not get out of bed standing straight up, so I was hunched over. It took me about a half hour to kind of straighten up. Then I'd be okay. I'd move slow. My whole life, I kept up my splits, my handstands. You know, I enjoyed moving my body. I couldn't come close to a split. I figured, all right, Pascal was two. I abused my body in circus. I abused my body with eating disorders. I've abused my body with drugs and alcohol when I was in the bar business. I figured this is the payment. Time to pay the piper, right? This is the arthritis. But I saw so many specialists and they all recommended medication after medication. And I just didn't feel good about all that medication. And then one day, if you've kept up with my story at all, my how, oh crap, potty training came to be, et cetera, et cetera. I owned a secondhand kid store in Rhode Island. And one day I was like perusing the internet and I came upon this guy. His name's Mark Sisson. He runs a website called Mark's Daily Apple. And what he said is that grains and sugar, all grains, so your oatmeal, your rice, your flour, anything baked, any pasta, anything like that causes inflammation. Inflammation is the root of all disease. You should give those up and eat high fat, high protein. What? Remember, I come from the 80s. We were low fat, totally low fat, low fat, high carb. So I was like, okay, huh. But I'm an experimenter. I am going to experiment and I'm going to figure out if it works for me. And then we'll see if there's any science behind it, if there's any facts. So the next day for lunch, I packed a huge salad. I put almonds and avocado and salmon. As a child of the 80s, we had heard about things like Atkins, but that just sounded wacky to me. And in fact, I still think Atkins in and of itself is kind of wacky. But anyway, I had never really heard of up the fat if you're going to lower the carbs. So I did that. I had salmon, avocado, olive oil, just whatever. I munched on it all day. Then I had like chicken and veggies with soaked in olive oil for dinner. Five days, five days later, I got out of bed standing straight up. I might cry <laughs> when I tell this story. It was miraculous. And my hands worked. I could bend. I could hinge at the hips. I kept walking to my bed and sitting down and getting up because I could not believe that my arthritis had gone away or the pain had gone away. So I was like, this is fucking nuts. 
Over the next two weeks, it continues to get better. The bags under my eyes go away. There was almost like a film behind my face that went away. I would stare at myself in the mirror because like my face looked so different. I couldn't believe it. So drastic changes. So that was like miracle number one. And again, I have like always been a fearless experimenter. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see. I'm going to jump into the pool. If there's no water, I'll find out later. <laughs> so, you know, I've given you a brief history of how much I experimented. And I became that annoying person. I was the person you wanted to slap because remember, this was called primal. This wasn't paleo. This was like the precursor to the paleo movement. The caveman diet, these things had been circulating, but then paleo really took off. But I was the annoying person who, you know, would tell you, oh my God, oh my God, you have to give up grains and sugar. Oh my God, you have to try this thing called paleo. Oh my God. (laughs) I alienated everybody. When I say I was annoying, I'm not kidding. I alienated a lot of people. And I also started to shut up because I realized when you talk about giving up grains and sugar, now I'm not talking carbohydrates, you guys. Carbohydrates come in many different forms. A lot of vegetables have carbohydrates, a lot of squashes, liver and eggs have carbohydrates. I'm talking about grains and sugar, which are largely huge amounts of carbohydrates, right? And the body takes in carbohydrates as sugar. It just reduces it to glucose, period. So it doesn't matter what form it comes in, it still ends up as glucose. So I feel so good though. I shut up, but I dive into nutrition and I've always been curious about nutrition, but now I'm like, what the hell is happening, right? How could I have seen all these specialists, all these doctors, and nobody tells me this, not one single person, And this leads me down the road of corruption, money, government interference, and a whole sorted story because I could not figure out. I said, okay, if sugar and grains cause inflammation and inflammation is the root of disease, we know this. So I'm going to go find the science. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have to go 10th page of Google. I think this is going to be fringe. I think this is going to be so out there because nobody mentioned it to me in all my doctor visits. It's right on the top page of Google. It's right on WebMD. Grains cause inflammation. Inflammation is the root of all disease. Like it's not hidden. It's right in plain sight. So I'm going, okay, well, if it's here, then where's the stop gap? Why aren't doctors recommending this? Why was I recommended so many pills and not this? And here's where it gets disturbing. (laughs) So I'm going to dip really fast into this, and mostly because I want to give you guys an overview. If it interests you, I can help you go down the rabbit hole of your choosing. But this is 15 years of hardcore research, looking at studies, going deeper, going deeper. So I just want to dip really fast. I don't have time to do all of that unless you guys want me to do an episode on it. I'll make it be boring, but here's kind of what happened. So first of all, you need to know that our dietary guidelines, so like my plate, the food pyramid, any suggestions you get, those were introduced in 1980. You would assume they've been along, around a long time, right? No, they're pretty new. I mean, I know 1980 isn't as new as I would like it to be, but so that's when the government got involved. That's when the government started to tell us what to eat. Now you might think that's because of health, but you would be thinking wrong because what really happened is greed and greed and greed. I'm going to get myself all crazy. All right. This is funny because let's see in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Yes, we had some, you know, TV dinners were coming on the scene. Crop food was definitely entering the market, but it didn't have all the weird ingredients that it has now. So it was crap food, but it was probably just like a little too much sugar, a little too much fat, right? And it wasn't home cooked. It wasn't as delicious. But 
this was the beginning in 1980. This was the beginning of hyper palatable foods because we started fucking with macronutrients prior to this. And if you think back a hundred years ago, we didn't have eating disorders. We didn't have picky eating. We didn't count macros. We didn't count calories. You know why? Food was food and we ate it. And for the most part, people were slender. People were in good health. And if you look at any graph about chronic diseases, when chronic diseases, all of them, cancers, diabetes, autoimmune issues, all of these things skyrocketed starting in 1980. So that's when I go, well, all right, let's see what happened. So the biggest corruption, the biggest one was dietary fat became demonized, right? And everybody tells you that saturated fat, oh my God, it's going to clog your arteries. It might interest you to know that the Dietary Association took saturated fat off the warning list in 2017 and nobody said a word. Saturated fat does not cause heart disease. There are a lot of other factors that we can get into but that's been removed from the warning list. And nobody said a word about it because nobody likes to be wrong and have to turn this huge boat around. So then I started looking at all the studies. The best book on this subject is called The Big Fat Surprise. It's by an investigative journalist named Nina Teicholz. And she has gathered all the things on how fat got demonized and sugar got glamorized. Heart disease studies have been corrupted and the dietary guidelines you would be shocked and horrified to learn how they came to be. Now, I want to take a minute here because you're going to talk about scientists and studies and doctors. The biggest thing is that scientists and doctors can be bought. Now, I'm not sure if you guys were around for the Philip Morris cigarette trials, but you know they, they got sued, much like uh, the Oxycontin, the Sacklers. They got sued and brought before you know all kinds of judiciary committees And I saw scientist after scientist and doctor after doctor swear on a Bible in a court of law that cigarette smoking is fine. Everybody can smoke. It doesn't cause lung cancer. It doesn't damage the lungs. It's fine. And when I saw that, I remember seeing those trials and I was like, what? You stop believing in scientists and doctors. You stop believing in studies because these people are just getting up and lying. Now that's an obvious thing. We know that cigarette smoking is bad for us. But that's just, it's just an inkling into the level of corruption we start talking about. You also have to know that scientists and doctors have humongous egos. That's where the fat and sugar thing comes into play because it was an ego fight between two different doctors. And so I think that when you start going down these paths, you start having a lot of mistrust. You get a healthy skepticism because all these things can be bought. There's also clickbait now. So I'll hear people say, well, this study said this and this study said that. And I'm like, but did you read the study? Do you know how to read a study? And I'm not saying that to be a snob, but a lot of people don't know how to read a study. And a lot of times you'll just see a clickbait, this, that, and the other thing. Here's this study. If you go to the study, it turns out the study was done on two people or on rats only, and they have no human information. So you really have to be careful. I think that's one of those words that is like bandied about, oh, this study said, and I'm like, okay, but let's look at the study. And this is work. This isn't easy. (laughs) So anyway, I keep diving and I keep diving, diving, diving. And uh, I'm experimenting with everything just because like keto was okay, but I still had to manage food. I don't know. I was gluten-free, this, that. I thought it was about weight. But like I said, I, I really think I had this small voice that was like, you deserve to feel better. I think if nothing else, take that away from this podcast. It's your birthright to feel really good, you guys. And I think we've forgotten that. Yeah. As good as I felt, I was still like gassy, bloated, hangry. And I was like, I don't know. There's got to be something more. So this is years now. I'm talking years go by. And oh, my diving into nutrition. I keep seeing this thing in passing. And it's more like 
I don't know, this started about maybe six or seven years ago. It started with like maybe a YouTube video that was recommended to me or, uh, I don't know. It was like seeing, you know, when you could see something out of the corner of your eye, it was like in the internet on the corner of my eye, woman eats no vegetables. And I'm like, fuck now, what is happening now <laughs> in the diet world? <laughs> woman eats no vegetables. How crazy can you be? So finally enough corners of my eye come through that I click this video and it's this woman, Amber O'Hearn. And sure as shit, she doesn't eat vegetables. And I'm like, I am rolling my eyes so heavy, but I'm going to watch it because I'm interested. And it turns out she's very calm. I think she's a scientist. I can't recall her exact story because it was a while ago. But basically she's like, yeah, I had autoimmune issues. I had depression. I had anxiety. I had skin issues and I started eating meat and everything's gone. I was like, what? This like can't even be. But then she said some magic words. She said, yeah, a lot of people think that it raises your cholesterol, that it's horrible for you just eating meat. And she said, but it's not. Any studies that have been done on meat eating, they've been done like people who eat meat, but also eat meat, Kentucky fried chicken. It's not like people who just eat good meat. It's, it's you know, with other things. So she said, you know, yeah, I tell people all the time to try it for 30 days. Look, if you're really concerned, it's going to kill you. It's not going to kill you in 30 days. It's not going to skew your numbers that much. You're going to always just go back to eating the way you were, but try it, see how you feel. I think you guys know where I'm going with this because I have said I'm a fearless experimenter. So I said, fuck yeah, I'm in. I do 30 days and it is miraculous. Like everything goes away, gas, bloating, joint pain that I didn't even know I had. Like I've gotten so acclimated to it. My body was like crazy. I felt so good. I know everybody thinks I'm crazy. And that's what I was like. I think people just don't understand how good you can feel. So a couple of things that went away in just those 30 days, any and all joint pain, like I said, joint pain that I didn't even realize I had seasonal allergies. I thought I always had seasonal allergies. They were gone. My like sinuses, I was breathing better than I'd ever breathed in my life. I had soft skin with no lotion. I didn't know this was possible. There are aisles and aisles of lotion at the store. Of course, everybody has dry skin, right? No. <laughs> amazing effortless poop. I'm here to tell you, you don't need fiber. People will argue with me, but I don't need fiber. Maybe you do. I don't. I have amazing poops now. I can go hours without eating. That was the relief. I can go hours without eating and feel fine, not hungry. And when I do get hungry, it's not an emergency. I'll be like, I'll wait till I get home and cook something. I don't have to stop somewhere and get something. I don't need food in my glove compartment. I don't need food in my purse. I have sustained energy no crashes. But I think the best thing was I had level parenting. Yeah, parenting, like our kids can be annoying. They can be frustrating. They can trigger us. But I was like effortlessly parenting. It was like I could, my mood couldn't be shook. And certainly I could get angry, but it wouldn't be lasting. I wouldn't ruminate. And then the last thing that was really amazing was effortless body composition because there's no bloating. My stomach's flat, which, you know, I appreciate (laughs) I gain muscle very, very easily. Again, I don't weigh myself at all. I haven't weighed myself in years, but I do really, you know, I keep an eye on my clothes. My clothes got really loose, but I wasn't hungry. I had, (laughs) this is what I've been searching for you guys. I wasn't hungry. I could go for hours. I was gaining muscle. It was the Holy Grail. It was what I had wanted my entire life. I didn't have to manage food. And I had a friend sat me down and she said, you know, I'm really worried about you. This is so restrictive. I feel like you're in another eating disorder. And I was like, 
but look at me, look at how happy I am. Like, look at, I'm not restricting. I'm not hungry. I'm not managing food. I'm just eating when I'm hungry and I'm eating 3000 to 4,000 calories a day. And I think calories are bullshit, but I was like keeping a loose eye because I couldn't believe how much food I was able to eat in a meal. And I was eating a lot, but then I could go a long time. And I just felt like, oh my God, not to manage food to me was the biggest thing. So let's go back to the beginning. Those, those things that spurred this episode. How do I eat? I eat animal based and I eat nose to tail, which means I eat organs, bones. I eat everything. I eat pretty high fat, not ketogenic fat, but much higher fat than I had probably ever eaten in my life. And occasionally I'll have like pumpkin, winter squashes, uh, butternut squash, spaghetti squash. Occasionally I do well with an occasional piece of fruit. Usually nothing like tropical, more like olives and avocado. I don't ever do nightshades. Nightshades are terrible for arthritis. And once I learned that, so that's tomatoes, eggplant, potatoes, and peppers, my four favorite things (laughs) that I could eat endlessly. So that was contributing, I'm sure, to my arthritis pain. So when I gave those up, I'm pretty sure that was the culprit. I don't do cruciferous anymore just because I get so bloated and my gas is so bad. It clearly is my body saying no. I seem to do okay on a little bit of sourdough every once in a while that I make at home, but I don't make it a regular practice, but I seem to do okay. I really do believe that starting with eating kind of healthy, right? Like even, even the whole grains, which now for me, that's not healthy for my body. So starting there and then going to the paleo and then going to carnivore-ish, I really think that has everything to do with menopause because the idea that we should be low fat is what has fucked with our hormones. And we go back to that menopause equation. What is going on in our society right now? Like what is happening that women are going into menopause at 40 or having these horrific menopauses, perimenopauses, like miserable. And I'm not against hormone replacement therapy. If you need it, go for it. But I just think, holy shit, why aren't we looking at this? Why does everybody need hormone replacement therapy now when they're 40? It just seems off, right? So I want to talk a bit about menopause because again, that's the part that I want you guys to know so you can take care of it early. So number one, let's talk about that guy, Mark Sisson, that got me into the paleo or primal. He also said something that drastically changed my life. And it's that you can be born with genes, but those genes don't have to express themselves. Those genes are expressed through diet and lifestyle. And we've all heard the person who's 105, who smokes two packs a day and eats a pound of bacon. Like, and drinks whiskey, right? So those people just don't have the genetic material (laughs) to die earlier than, uh, than that. So my medical history is autoimmune, you know? And at first we thought it was cancer because my grandparents and great grandparents all died of cancers, but they were blue collar workers in New England. They had mill related cancers. They worked in terrible environments and that's what killed them. But my mom, my sister, my aunt, my grandmother all had terrible autoimmune stuff and reproductive organ stuff. So Knowing that when I hit upon this guy, when I was 40, I was like, holy shit, I could control this. I can control my medical history. That is amazing. So I immediately started to eat, you know, and think about how can I mitigate or stop my autoimmune genes, which I'm sure I have, right? I mean, it would stand to reason and not express themselves. So that has been a guiding principle for me. And it's awesome. My mom got really mad at me because I was like, you're my medical history. She was like, oh my God. I said, but Ma, you are my medical history and I don't want to end up like you. Why should I want to end up medically fragile? And you guys know the drama that's happening with for her. 
when we think hormones and balancing hormones, we tend to think of our reproductive hormones, right? Progesterone, testosterone, and estrogen. But there are so many other hormones that I think play into, I mean, there's so many hormones, but I think the big ones are cortisol, adrenaline or epinephrine, ghrelin, and leptin, right? And then there's the king daddy insulin. And if you fuck with your insulin, you are messing with the whole system. So that's where blood sugar, insulin resistance, food, sugar, bad foods, not moralizing people who eat them, but there are such things as bad food because they'll mess with your insulin. Over time, you'll become insulin resistance, which means the cells are full, they can't take in. And that's when you look at prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So that's where I'm coming from when I say, yeah, there are bad foods. Now, occasionally to eat them, of course not. The human body is resilient. It will bounce back. But if we're flooding the system all the time with these foods, you are going to screw up your insulin, which is going to have a cascade of terrible effects in all your other hormones. Cortisol and adrenaline. How many times as a parent are you losing your shit? That's adrenaline, right? Cortisol is constant stress. These things also really factor in. The thing with cortisol is that you start to hold subcutaneous fat in your middle, right? So when you're really stressed out, that's where people store their cortisol. The problem with that is that, now, well, let me explain. So subcutaneous fat, if you don't know, that's the fat you can kind of grab on your body, right? Also, that's called adipose tissue. And I call them that because fat has become a loaded topic, right? I don't think there's a moral quality to it, but that's where we are with the body positivity movement. But there is subcutaneous fat, and then there's visceral fat. And this is why I don't love the body at every size is healthy, because skinny people can be very unhealthy and overweight people can be very healthy. Like we know that, but it's not size. And I think it's more detrimental to the skinny person who thinks they're healthy because they're skinny, but they have all this visceral fat. The visceral fat is around your organs and that's really lethal. So let me go back a little bit. You have to watch the insulin. So if you are hangry and I'm having a blood sugar specialist come on the podcast, if you find yourself hangry or you have blood sugar issues, it can be fixed but you have to know that that's not normal. And it's become so acceptable in our society. I actually have it, that word in my toddler book, and now I regret it because I've learned since even writing that book. Blood sugar regulation has everything to do with aging well. So you want to get a handle on insulin and blood sugar, not just because of your mood, which is also helpful, but because it's a cascade of hormones. Now, With menopause, and again, I'm doing the broadest strokes, you guys. I hope something catches your interest in here, but none of this is a deep, deep dive. So when we look at the obvious testosterone, progesterone, and estrone, the first thing that really takes a hit in menopause is your progesterone, because that's what makes your womb all nice and cozy and, hey, baby, come on and settle in here, right? So that takes a dip. And then next is your testosterone. And what happens, and estrogen tends to go up for a lot of women, So what happens is then we gain weight because we start to lose muscle. And so our muscles aren't working metabolically for us. And that makes the testosterone kind of dip. Then we start to gain weight. And there are three kinds of estrogen. There's one, two, and three. There's estrone, which is one, estradiol, which is two, and estriol, estriol, which is three. I don't want to get into the weeds here because this is a huge topic, but E1 gets produced. So that's the estrone. It gets produced through fat cells. So literally, the more fat you have, the more you produce this form of estrogen. Then you become estrogen dominant. Now, we also have an influx. There's so much soy and eating of soy, but soy in all kinds of products that that is also making us estrogen dominant. When you have that much estrogen, that is what is responsible for all the typical menopausal symptoms. And, you know, there is some fat that is really good, like fat around the hips and thighs are preventative against heart disease. But the middle and the other fat on your body, if you're over fat, 
you have a lot of that adipose tissue, you're just producing more of that estrone, which is not protective against heart disease. So you got to be taking all the emotion out of it. You'd kind of want to be lean. You want as less subcutaneous fat as you could possibly have because it's just going to make your menopause easier. No emotion, no moralizing, no good or bad. Do you want a good menopause? Do you want to age without night sweats and hot flashes and all this stuff, the brain fog, all the things associated with menopause? Do you want to age well? So, and I know this gets tricky because again, with body positivity, and again, I'm not moralizing. I'm not saying anybody's good or bad. I'm just stating the facts that you're better off being lean. Now, after 50, we start losing muscle and it's really hard to get it back. One of the reasons I did not do the surgery on my knee after I fell a couple of years ago is that I could not afford to be sedentary for that long. I would lose too much muscle mass. And after 50, you have to work twice as hard. You have to double down on your protein. Protein synthesis slows down. So it, it's kind of a nightmare. And that's when you start getting that like flabby, that hanging skin, that crepe skin. You want to have lean muscle mass, which means you want to work out. You want to lift heavy things. And we'll get to that because you don't have to go to a gym or anything like that. But these are the things that not only help you through menopause, but will help you age. The number one cause of death in the elderly is complications from falls. So you cannot afford to be frail. So you want to look at your lean muscle mass. You want to look at your bone density. And again, we'll get to that. So this is literally how I train now. People be like, you know, my physique is nice and I'll get comments on it. I'm like, that's cool. What are you training for? And I say, getting old. And people laugh and I'm like, I'm not, I'm training for getting old. I mean, I like my Spartan races. I like to do handstands, but at this point in time, that's what I'm looking at. And so that's really how I train and eat so that I have lean muscle mass. I keep my hormones balanced and I do believe that's fat intake yeah? <laughs> and keeping my bones really strong. Now there's another component here that can be controversial and that is seed oils. And if you Google seed oil, so that's going to be canola, safflower, sunflower, rapeseed, all of these seed oils. If you Google it, you will find just a wild, what do I want to say? Division, almost equal. Uh, canola oil is great for you. Okay, fine. If you think that seed oils are good for you, rock on. I would encourage you to Google or YouTube how canola oil is made, and maybe that will change your mind. So seed oils came out of the industrial revolution. They were lubricants. They were lubricants for the new machines. And Procter and Gamble realized, you know, it's a long story that you can look up. They were soap makers and they realized that if they hydrogenized and oxidized these oils, that they would be shelf stable and they could use them as a cheaper version in soap. And so then when they realized that, that they could clean them with a product called hexane, which is a form of petroleum, <laughs> they could clean them and make them shiny. They could market them as oils and Crisco. And so that's when like Crisco came out in the 1920s, I think. And there was a heavy marketing campaign to get lard and animal fats out of the diet and these hydrogenized oxidized oils in. Now, the interesting thing to me is in my menopausal research, menopause prior to 1920, menopausal symptoms weren't documented. Menopause was, but the symptoms were documented lightly. There was some talk about it. It wasn't until 1920 that all of a sudden women started to go a little cuckoo during menopause. And then Freud got involved and thought we were all hysterical. Menopause became medicalized. And so I think, again, looking at charts and graphs, you look at like, wait a minute, everybody had menopause, but they kind of just stopped bleeding. 
Now looking at 1920, that's when we started these really odd symptoms of menopause. And then they got worse and worse and worse. And if we look at a graph, by the time we get to 1980, (laughs) we're looking at early menopause. And now here we are again, menopause is like this huge, big deal. There is some research coming out being a woman's thing. It's not as been tested or studied as widely as male things. But I just, I do think it's really interesting that after the industrial revolution and the introduction of seed oils, that that's when the hormones drastically seem to have gone wild. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I don't want to start any arguments here. (laughs) You know, if you think seed oils are healthy, have at it. This has been my experience. And in fact, seed oils damage the mitochondria, which is responsible for ATP, which is our energy output. And so I haven't eaten seed oils in a long time. But, you know, know, Pascal could have them in a little... There were a couple of things that I didn't... You know, I was like, well, he can have a little... And then he's been, you know, fatigued and he's a teenager and he always wants to sleep. But I said, dude, you got to like, let's try to give up seed oils and just see if you notice a difference. And sure enough, after like two weeks of no seed oils, he's like, "Ah, I can totally feel it. Like I have more energy. And now he reads labels and his friends are very fatigued. So there is that. (laughs) The problem with seed oils is they're in everything, literally in everything. And I've read every ingredients in Whole Foods and it's in everything. There are three kinds of chocolate that you can buy that don't involve child slave labor or have seed oils. There are no snacks, no pre-packaged snacks. Yeah. There's a there's a couple. There's like a, a popcorn that's made in coconut oil, which is cool, but he hates coconut oil. So there's no snacks. So this is incredibly hard. <laughs> and so that's where I think people turn a blind eye to it because they're like, yeah, I can't. That's too hard. I can't do that. So anyway, I would bare bones encourage you to go to YouTube and look how canola oil is made. And then if that's something that you want to keep consuming, then rock on. <laughs> so for me, a lot of this comes down to something is wrong. There's just something wrong. Yeah. And right now, in 2000, well, 2022, 2023 is a little too new to figure this out, but it's estimated that 70% of Americans are on at least one medication. 40% of Americans take three medications or more. One in three Americans have prediabetes. Type 2 diabetes accounts for 90 to 95% of all diagnosed diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is up 40% in children. Type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. We have a food problem and we don't have a weight problem. We don't have a moral problem. We have a food problem. And that's what I want to bring home with this episode. Something is wrong and I'm not claiming that I have all the answers. What I'm bringing forth to you is that I've done a lot of fucking experimenting. (laughs) And so these are some things that I've come down to in my experimenting. And I feel like if I don't talk about it, then all my work that I've put into this time, this body and this soul will be wasted. So that's where I'm coming from. Again, I'm not going to tell you how to eat, but I am going to tell you how I experimented where I landed. And I hope that is helpful. But this food problem brings us to the Halloween and intuitive eating. So around Halloween, it came into my, you know, like I said, it came into my newsfeed, like the way not make candy a big deal is to serve it all the time. Right. And the whole intuitive eating came out of a lot of eating disorders, came out of a lot of people who realized they were restricting. And if they didn't restrict so much and allowed any food possible, that they would be intuitive eating. And you can pull it up on Instagram and you will see people eating cupcakes and Doritos and Snickers and see, look at me, I'm skinny and I can eat these things and I don't binge. Number one, I want to say that there is such a thing as food addiction. And so telling certain people that they should be able to moderate 
junk food or highly palatable food that might light up their brain is akin to telling an alcoholic that they should be able to just have one beer and what is wrong with them and they're doing it wrong and they should obviously have a beer a day because that will help them not have a beer. It's that crazy. Within this, the eating all the time, people were saying there's no bad food. There's no bad foods. And you can see it on Instagram. There's a nutritionist. Look, there's no good foods. There's no bad foods. Let's not moralize food. Again, I'm not moralizing, but I hope part of this podcast let you know that there are bad foods. Just because we eat something and it doesn't kill us doesn't mean that there's not a cumulative effect. Again, we don't have to not ever eat it, right? We can have it. And that's why we have things like Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's or whatever your holidays are that you celebrate. Because we historically, we've been a feast or famine. There's always been times of famine. There's been times of no food. And then there are times of feasting. So we naturally, as humans, I think, have a binge restrict <laughs> cycle <laughs> that's kind of inherently built in, right? But for the life of me, I can't figure out why we would normalize eating really bad food that we know hits our bodies wrong and that isn't good for us. And then the only thing I can think of is we don't know. Do we not know? But I think we know. <laughs> and so I had um, another scary thing that happened in October was I was, you know, I follow parenting experts, I follow influencers, I follow picky eating, especially like the picky eating in my job has gotten out of control, out of control. So many picky eaters, there's feeding clinics everywhere. Six years ago, there weren't feeding clinics and now they're everywhere. And these kids, they're down to two foods and I can't figure it out. So anyway, this one, you know, a fairly influential eating site had a a great post. I thought it was a great post about texture and how kids can freak out about different textures. A mom commented, she said, oh yeah, I'm so relieved. I finally got my kid to eat another flavor of Pop-Tarts. We still haven't been able to add milk to his lucky charms. And, you know, a little more about preschool. So I assume the kid's around three. And the feeding expert said, yay, that's such great progress. I don't want to shame because I know picky eating can be so horrific. So I'm not shaming this mom and I'm not shaming the feeding expert. But part of me was like, is this where we are? We're trying another flavor of Pop-Tarts is hard. And like not adding milk to lucky charms, it's just is that where we're going? And those are highly palatable foods. And it makes me wonder, are we creating food addictions? This idea that there are no bad foods, but there are. (laughs) So, And again, not faulting the mama, not faulting the picky eating expert, but I'm like, there's just a part of me that like, guys, what are we doing? What are we doing to our bodies? Yeah. And that's where we get into like the intuitive eating. And so I see this premise and and for me, this premise doesn't work that eat whatever you want and your body will level out. It does not work for me. I have tried it throughout my life. It does not help. I think I'm a certain person. I think I have food addiction and whether I cause that with that original dissociative eating binge and I cause some chemical reaction in my mind, I cannot have these foods. It is easier for me to not manage food by not having them. And we now it's been well documented that there are abstainers and moderators and some people can moderate and some people can't. So I just think it's really unethical for people like nutritionists to get on there and say, everybody can moderate when some people can't. And if some people find a way of eating like me, where I don't have to think about food and I don't have to moderate and manage anything, I think that's better. Yeah. (laughs) So I just wanted to bring that up because that comes up a lot. And I think if you are managing food, if you think you have to moderate, I thought for years I wasn't healthy and I wasn't past an eating disorder until I could moderate and I never could. And when food addiction 
kind of came on the scene and it's, it's gaining traction. Like there are psychiatrists who, uh, psychologists who absolutely say it's not a thing. But when I saw that, I was so relieved. I was like, wait a minute. I'm just like a, I'm an alcoholic with food. I just got to give up these food. And it's not all food. It's those foods. <laughs> so I was like, I can do that. That's way easier, you know? And if you've ever met somebody who has a drug or alcohol problem, you will know that they go through a phase where they think they can manage it. And then there's this like, there's so much counting and thinking and time management. And it's such a struggle that that becomes restrictive to me. So anyway, moving on, this leads us to the very first question with the patron who commented that she wants to start feeling the way I feel in my body. Where do you start? And so this whole podcast has been a very long answer to that question. And I would say, start with whole unprocessed food. And that's why I went through all this other nonsense in this podcast is because that in itself or eat healthy gets so fucking skewed. But I think you can't go wrong if you eat foods in their most natural state possible, right? And so when we look at that, what does that mean? You know, animal proteins, yes, in their natural state as much as possible. Go for vegetables in their natural state as much as possible. Eat the fats. Look at how olive oil is made and pressed. Eh, that's pretty damn close to how it looks on the vine, right? It's not the same as canola oil. Lard and tallow, animal-based fats, those are pretty close to the source. There's a greenwashing, I don't know what to call it. It's greenwashing with food and it's packaging. Yeah, heart healthy is put on all cereal, you guys. Lucky Charms has a heart healthy symbol on it. So if you want to tell me that the American Heart Association isn't bought and paid for, <laughs> I don't know a bigger sign. <laughs> Plant-based. Plant-based has become the new thing. But if you're eating something plant-based that has 19 ingredients, has been through a lab and a process and shipped from China, guys, does that make any sense? We can't look at these labels and be like, oh, it's plant-based. Must be good for me. I would just stick to the perimeter of the grocery store and stick with your proteins, your fats, and your vegetables. See how you feel if you give up grains. See if it makes a difference. If it doesn't, rock on. If it does, now you know, and then you, you won't be a victim to your body. I think that's the big thing too. Like before going sort of animal-based, I felt like things were happening to my body and now I know. And so I had plenty of pie on Thanksgiving. I'm not like <laughs> I'm not demonic, but I knew, I knew I was going to feel like shit the next day. And I knew the symptoms that would happen. I expected it and knew how to heal it. And so that to me is the biggest gift is not being a victim to my body, knowing, knowing what to expect and naturally avoiding those things. Cause I don't want to feel that shitty every day. All right. And then how would you start if you want to move your body? 100%. If you are at ground zero, you've never moved your body before. Start with walking, walk, 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 walk with your kids, walk around the block, walk with weights, walk, walk, walk as much as you can, as often as you can. There's a thing called neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis. <laughs> I just remember that. And those are the calories you burn, the metabolic processes that go, you go through. I don't like talking about calories because calories have never been studied in a body. So just so you know that, it's only been studied as it burns in a lab. So I think calories are loose marker, but not, not great. But you buy yourself a tracker and I'm not all about tracking, but if you have a, buy yourself a cheap tracker, because if you can get eight to 10,000 steps a day, that's awesome. And it's just information. You're like, holy shit, I was only moving a thousand steps a day. I can easily double that. And I think walking is just a really good place to start. Outside, 
air on your face gear, walk in the rain, walk in the snow, walk when it's cold, walk when it's hot. And that's just so beneficial for your body, for your mind, for your cardiovascular. So that's where I would start if you're at ground zero. If you have a little bit of a background, start strength training now. As a female in your 30s, start strength training. Lift heavy. Do yourself a favor. Invest in yourself. Get a trainer for one or two sessions, even if it's online. Learn how to lift properly and lift heavy. You don't have to go to a gym. I have a bucket of rocks, a five-gallon bucket from Home Depot in my driveway with rocks in it. And on heavy days, I put more rocks on. Light days, I take less rocks and I walk around with that. And just that is beneficial. So don't make it complicated. If you hate to go to a gym, don't go to a gym. Buy one kettlebell and start with that. YouTube has videos after videos. You can find whatever you like. I actually like those memberships. I love Beachbody. I think they have some great workouts and that's like $99 a year. And they have like Pilates and bar and, you know, fast stuff, CrossFit. They have all different kinds of things. And so maybe it's investing in that and just finding what you like. But I will say, lift heavy. This is integral because you will start losing your muscle mass and it's really hard to get back. And then lastly, I would just do what you love. Really do what you love. Lift a few weights, lift your kids. (laughs) I have a video of Pascal. I, I do sled work and I put him on the sled and I just wheel him around and that's heavy and do what you love, but move your body. The human body is meant to move at whatever you believe, design, nature, God, the body's designed to move. We're not meant to sit as much as we are and we're breaking down. And so just anything, get out with your kids, play. That's why I love the Spartan races. I just feel like I'm playing with my friends. I'm just a kid on a playground, a 54 year old kid on a playground. And I think that's where you find the joy in your body is finding movement you love, finding food that you love, finding food and movement that just makes you feel good. And this isn't about weight. You shouldn't punish yourself it should make you feel good. And I think you'll see miraculous changes. All right. I'm going to close out with, once again, I am not telling you what to eat. I am simply presenting things that have worked for me in a very long experimental process. <laughs> I hope this was helpful. If anything sparked for you, if, if you're like, what? I would like more information or I never heard that or you know, what about? Happy to answer them. Happy to do another podcast. Yeah. Very excited. This podcast, like I said, has, it's been a burning passion at the bottom of my heart since I read that comment in September. And I have had more conversations with Maverick about this podcast. So rock on you guys. I super appreciate you. Happy new year. And yeah, here's to feeling good. Here's to loving ourselves. Rock on. Okay. Bye everyone. Just a reminder, if you need additional resources, I have Oh Crap Potty Training. I have Oh crap, I have a toddler. Those books are available everywhere you want to find a book. <laughs> you can also go to my website, jamieglowacki.com, where you can book private sessions with me, buy any of my courses. Those are really geared towards potty training help. And also I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore and I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, jamie.glowacki, and I do a lot of lives and uh, usually posting a lot of good information. So those are extra resources for you. And as always, rock on. Have an awesome day.